0: Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is Dr. Bridget Scott and the focus of today's podcast is the developments in endometrial cancer research presented during 2023. This podcast has been funded by a medical education grant from GSK. Joining me today are two experts in the field, Professor Keto LaRusso and Dr. Rob Coleman, who are going to offer their perspectives on the most important research and the latest findings in endometrial cancer presented during 2023. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of GSK or EMJ. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Keta Larusso and Dr. Rob Coleman. On to our first question. The unprecedented progression-free survival results from Ruby with Dostalimab and NRG GY018 with Pembrolizumab were a highlighted 2023. Can you tell us about how these results have impacted endometrial cancer management? Rob, would you like to start us off?
1: Oh yeah, sure. I would say not at all. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> of course, it's changed. It's been such a, um, yeah, as you mentioned, it's unprecedented. So uh, it has really had a profound effect. And as, and, and as you uh, may recall, um, you know when these were presented at the meetings, uh, you know it was it met with a standing ovation. From the audience and what was most i think impactful for me at that meeting was to listen to a patient stand up and congratulate the audience for their dedication to do this it really drives home the value of what it is that we do with clinical research in trying to move the needle so these these obviously these results have profound effects because of their magnitude of benefit that we saw in their analytical population so these were focused studies that were trying to identify whether or not the addition of immune therapy to chemotherapy and use it as a maintenance strategy actually impacted the lives of, of women whose tumors carry these alterations and, you know, and in, in GY 0 and 8, um, actually in looking at the proficient MMR population as an analytical subgroup. So it was so, it was just so, uh, impressive. Uh, and so, um, uh, so impactful and cause the you know regulatory agencies to uh, you know to make decisions on uh, a relatively rapid rapid scale. Ken, what do you, what about what about on your side of the pond?
2: Oh, Rob, I could not agree more. I, I, you know, we studied endometrial cancer for several years. We consider endometrial cancer an easy to manage tumor. At at the end, this is the only gynecological malignancy with an increase in incidence and mortality. And now we have immunotherapy in combination with chemo. And you mentioned the two trial and other trial will come. But what really surprised me, positively surprised, is the consistency of data. Mm-hmm. Two different drug, uh, two different population uh, trial carried on in different parts of the world that gave exactly the same results and the same magnitude of benefit. And uh, mm-hmm. that's really, really consistent.
1: Yeah, that was really exciting. And you know, of course we don't want we don't want to sh- give any short shrift to uh, the attend trial and to OE. Uh, because the, But in those subpopulations where, that were consistent with the uh, two that we just mentioned that came later, again, I mean, it was like, like so amazing to see the absolute consistent nature now of three, you know, or four different, you know, uh, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, throughout this population. So it's really exciting.
2: And Rob, what is important to me, you know, you mentioned very clearly that uh, um, in Ruby trial, uh, the evaluation of the PMMR population was a non analytical endpoint, while in GYO18 it was an analytical endpoint. And we saw benefit in both the population. Um, Even though the the magnitude of benefit was a as expected, I have to mm-hmm. say, difference between uh, the DMMR uh, patient and the PMMR patient still also in the, no doubt, I think uh, uh, all of us uh, have no doubt to use immunotherapy in combination with mm-hmm. chemo in the DMMR tumor, but uh, I'm, I'm curious to know what is your opinion about the PMMR tumor because uh, you you know that it's a really go
1: right for uh, the dagger I love it. <laughs> yes
2: because you know, the, the benefit it was there is this was benefit mm-hmm. as a ratio of 0.54 so there is benefit no doubt about that but still not all the clinicians are convinced about using immunotherapy in the PMMR tumor what's your opinion about that
1: yeah, thanks so much. I, you know, I, I agree. I think that G-Way 018, um, which you made this an analytical endpoint, helped to, um, I think, it, it provides the the confidence that, you know, at least from the things that we know that we can balance randomization and things that we can't, that we don't know that are going to be balanced randomization, at least those were controlled for. And we saw this benefit, as you just mentioned. So I think that was really a, a very bold move to do. and I'm And I'm glad that they did it of course, we need more information um, as time goes on with the overall survival. But again, these were, you know, the, the, like we, you know, not so much as we, like we didn't see in the DMR population, the PMR population across the studies have had a little bit of variation. I mean, some of them look like they're, they're all, they're all trending, you know, kind of in the right direction so that they're not as strong as we saw with the DMR population. But they're not as positive across all the studies as we would, you know, as hope. And of course, they're not um, analytical. So all of those other factors, like the, you know, the, although they're stratified for, but there's many other issues there, such as the, um, the, you know, uh, potentially race, the, you know, the the, uh, the proportion of patients with recurrent disease, um, and then you know other factors like we found with molecular testing, like p fifty three mutation and alteration. So these things. These things are not, you know, controlled for when these things are not, when the, when the endpoints are not analytical. And, and so, um, so I don't know how to, how to judge them. You know, ultimately what I think we're going to see is that we have the performance of an immune checkpoint inhibitor in a PMMR situation. Um, So the question is, are there, is that, are we done or is there, or, or is there now room to kind of improve upon that or even try a different strategy? based on these now new molecular um, alterations in that in that same setting. So so it's kind of like, a, I don't know, we, we would call this a, maybe a, like a, what we call in baseball a sacrifice bunt. So you got to first base, but um, we're not really quite sure exactly is that gonna actually end up as a run, knockup on score on the board. And I hate to use the American, I'm sure this is something similar <laughs> <laughs> overseas, but you get my point.
2: <laughs> but I fully agree with you and also you said PMMR is an heterogeneous population, and so probably this is the starting point. I fully agree with you, and probably we need more information to understand inside the PMMR who are the patients that most benefit, mm-hmm. but a just step
1: forward, a huge yeah. step forward. <laughs> Sounds good.
0: So clearly the results of the um, the Ruby and the NRG GYZ118 have been practice changing and it must have been an absolute honor to be there to hear the results announced in March mm-hmm. at SGO and to Rob, you mentioned hearing from a patient how impactful those results were for the, for the patient community it must be absolutely brilliant to hear that. It also, mm-hmm. it also sounds like these studies have answered some questions, but they are raising so many more. I mean, you're talking about the subpopulations and the difference in response between the DMMR and the PMMR population. So there is plenty more work to be done in this area, isn't there?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: So um, we talked about the progression-free survival results in the Ruby, in the GY 18 What about the overall survival data? Um, what what information do we have about that those two studies, um, and what does it mean for patients with endometrial cancer? Keta, can you tell us about that?
2: Oh, we will see in less than one month at the SGO the results, the final results of overall survival of the Ruby Ruby trial. We saw some preliminary immature overall survival results of Ruby, which were presented in parallel with the PFS final data. It seems promising and it seems to be a trend in overall survival, but for sure now we will see the final overall survival data that were already announced by a press release as positive. It will be interesting to me to see that... In my opinion, the overall survival will be probably mainly driven by the DMMR population. That's what I expect. Nevertheless, the, the endpoint of overall survival, the analytical allocation of alpha was in the intention to treat population. So we will have an overall survival data related to the intention to treat. I mean, all patients, DMMR and PMMR. And for the first time, in my opinion, after several years, we will have a, a drug that, in combination, with chemo, increase overall survival, and and that's a really really a practice changing treatment.
1: Yeah, I um, I agree. I, of course, I agree. And um, and you uh, I I just love how you you know Keta, how you say you know how you emphasize the issue about analytical. You know, I can remember a couple of years back. Where we never really actually paid attention to what was really analytical or not, it's just whatever showed up on the KM curve, and we were saying, "Oh, that's that's for real." But you're right in all of these trials, and we haven't seen GY zero and eight obviously yet. But but for Ruby attend, and then the two arms of DuoE, you know, overall survival was an analytical endpoint for the on the entire population for the intent to treat population, and so we've been very careful in this podcast to to call out those for which there was directed. You know, alpha for the analysis versus exploratory groups, which would help raise, as you, as you mentioned, Bridget, the, the hypotheses that we want to test going forward. And so those are really super important to distinguish because we can come to false conclusions by going down that route. So, as Keda mentioned, the, 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 uh, the, we're really excited to see uh, the updated data on Ruby. Um, and as we know, it was positive. This was an analytical endpoint in the ITT population. So this, this will be obviously, you know, very important. And I love to talk about overall survival, but what I, really, what I really like to even talk about even more is, and I hate to even use this, but cure. Are we, Cure Keto, what is your opinion? Are we actually curing patients with metastatic or recurrent endometrial cancer? And, and, and what I mean by that are the tails of the progression-free survival curves are very flat. Yeah. So, you know, over time, obviously, this we'll will, will see this, but are we actually curing patients? Uh,
2: you I, you know, I think yes. I think <laughs> yes. If you look at the, <clears throat> the curves of uh, uh, PFS in DMMR population, after yeah. one year, the curve's flat completely there is a plateau and we have no more events and uh, you know in a metastatic disease if you have no more events in two years or three years i I think we can consider this patient cured Um, and and this is incredible this is incredible (laughs) We yeah. are lucky, Rob. We are living an unprecedented <laughs> moment in the treatment of endometrial cancer.
1: Oh, man. And, you know, I mean, you and I both, we we spent so much time trying to get interest in trying to this disease, trying to move the needle. And we just did chemo after chemo after chemo and got nowhere. And now just just unbelievable change in the landscape. So yeah. it's really neat. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, I can imagine you probably didn't envisage saying the words cure and metastatic yeah. cancer in the same sentence before before the amazing results in twenty twenty three incredible
1: yeah I think this I think this year we have a we have a poster um, coming up at SGO that talks about this and physicians attitudes towards even saying the word because you know patients will come in after they finish their frontline treatment and say am I cured and we would always say well you know it's, you know we'd him you know him and ha and say well you know we'll see you know this is you're in a good space. You know, we'll continue to follow you closely. So we never say that word, ever. But you know, when you start to, you know, as time goes on and patients don't recur, so even though the overall survival data for the population is actually advanced, the patients that never recur, you know, that's that's a, that's a different that's a different ballpark. I mean, we're like, this is really great stuff, and uh, and so uh, you know, so it's, you know, it's 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 interesting to hear um, that this is now kind of something that we can actually start to talk about.
0: Absolutely wonderful. Now, of course, the aim for all these treatments is to have um, extended life, but also health-related quality of life is an important factor for patients. And the results from Ruby indicate that um, health-related quality of life was maintained with dostarlimab plus chemotherapy relative to chemotherapy alone. How important is this observation? Rob?
1: Well, yeah, thank you so much. I think, you know, quality of life is obviously as important as having life. So we want to make sure that these patients uh, can can live full and robust lives. I think what's happened over time, you know, when a new entity enters into the treatment landscape, we, we interrogate it very carefully um, and try to make sure that we're not harming patients, even though we're extending life. And we got we got um, a lot of experience with immunotherapy over the years, and because of that, we got very good at at, at mitigating uh, toxicities that we saw emerging, and we were able to, um, you know, to intervene on those strategies appropriately while still maintaining efficacy, and that became really important for uh, patients who we now can expect to live longer than we anticipated before that they would have good quality of life and not having to deal with the burden of treatment. Uh, And so I think that, you know, I can remember when we first started doing immunotherapy trials as single agents that, you know, we had several patients that would end up in the hospital uh, that we would monitor them, you know, for liver toxicities and all kinds of immune adverse events. We've gotten so much better at doing this so that trials like this that were done, in, in, in hospitals and clinics that have various different levels of experience with immunotherapy, that we were able to maintain good quality of life across a number of different scales. So um, it doesn't mean there's no toxicity. It just means that we're able to mitigate the impact of that toxicity in a way that um, allows patients to enjoy good quality of life.
2: Yes, I, and if I can add, this is particularly important, considering the duration of treatment, because chemotherapy is provided from six cycle. I mean, for months, for months and a half, but the immunotherapy is provided for two years or three years in the two trial that we mentioned, and this means that the the maintenance of quality of life uh, is a long term treatment benefit, and and this is absolutely important that we do not impair quality of life of our patient for two years or three years.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely, you know, I think uh, as as time goes on, we're getting we use a you know a number of, of scales that you know that are reflective we believe of the patient experience but we're continuing to expand on these scales and look into these subscales and learn you know other more nuanced uh impacts of treatment on on patient lives and you know i'm i'm excited to see this whole field kind of continue to evolve as we learn about ways to monitor uh variables that you can't really quantify very well like sleep disorders and um, and concentration and, and, and there's other technologies that are coming out that with like wearables that, w- that we would be able to capture data in, uh, in an anonymous way that would help us to, to even nuance this therapy even further. But it's so important that we get it right because right now the, 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 the survival process of survival data looks so good. So what Keta just mentioned is super important, I think, to, um, uh, you know, to the patients to be able to, to, to uh, provide the best opportunity for a, a really good quality of life.
0: So it sounds like the quality of life uh, research is taken an, an important step in terms of thinking about digital therapeutics and wearables and looking at the different sort of subcategories of quality of life. It's all to benefit the patients isn't it? It's all to understand their experience and then the clinicians mm-hmm. can advise, inform accordingly to, to help them live even better lives. Wonderful.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, what information was gained in twenty twenty three from other phase three studies such as duo e? And where does this fit into the overall picture for endometrial cancer management? Ketta? Oh, E was a very
2: interesting trial, in my opinion. It was the first time that we used PARP inhibitor in endometrial cancer in combination with uh, immune therapy. And the trial provided a significant increase in progression-free survival with respect to chemotherapy alone in the first-line setting of advanced disease. The, the trial is also a chemo plus immuno harm, which confirmed as a Ruby, as NGY-O18, as ATTEN confirmed the benefit of uh, the combo of chemo plus immuno with respect to chemo. But the, the more interesting to me, the third experimental arm chemo plus PARP plus immunotherapy. The only limitation of the trial, in my opinion, this was really a visionary trial when it was decided. The only limitation, in my opinion, is that, as Rob said, the analytical comparison between the two experimental arms, I mean chemo plus immuno and chemo plus immuno plus PARP. So what is the added benefit of PARP to immunotherapy? It's not an analytical endpoint. We can only extrapolate by subgroup analysis and something like that. And according to subgroup analysis, it seems that the population that gained benefit from the quadruplet combination, chemo plus immuno plus PARP, is the population of the PMMR tumor, uh, which is the population that, as we said, uh, has less benefit of immunotherapy. So even though hypothesis generating for sure, but uh, in my opinion, is the PMMR population that uh, will mostly take advantage of uh, PARP plus immuno.
1: What yeah, do you think? It, Rob? Yeah, I think you're right on your spot on, of course. Um the uh the, you know, we we have tried for some time to try to understand where how PARP inhibitor would work in endometrial cancer. Uh we've studied this, try to find the predictive biomarker. It's been difficult. Um first of all we don't have mutation in the same way that uh you know, BRCA mutation in the same way that we see in ovarian cancer, where we've seen such it be such a Powerful prognostic and predictive biomarker for for that disease. Uh, we've looked at multiple different mutations in endometrial cancer to see if there's a subgroup. Uh, I think that was interesting subgroup that that was presented was in the PDL1 by their by the TAP score, where there was seen to be a strong relationship between that the presence of you know TAP positive versus TAP negative in that subgroup. So I don't know. There, there's there's multiple factors that could contribute to it, but you know, I, I, I'm excited to see that, uh, that there's going to be a lot more work done in that subgroup to see who are the patients that are benefiting from this, as you mentioned, quadruple uh, approach to it, because we would really love to continue to advance that. And of course, now we have Ruby Part 2 coming out, which is looking at that same question. Uh, and we've heard some preliminary, you know, press release data that this is a positive trial in that in that PMMR cohort. So um, in an analytical way. So Really excited to uh, see if maybe we can, can interrogate this subgroup a little further to find out who are, exactly are the patients that are going to benefit with that combination.
2: And Rob, considering that we are talking about PARP, do you expect that in the future we will start evaluating uh, HRR or HRD <laughs> in endometrial <laughs> cancer?
1: Yeah, I wish. <laughs> Why don't you ask me all the tough questions? <laughs> <laughs> Because you are so good. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, that's it's a it's a really good question. You know, you know, uh, some of my uh, good friends at MD Anderson studied this uh, HRD kind of question with PARP. Um uh, This is from Anil uh, Sood's lab, and and basically what we saw was we kind of got a bimodal distribution of looking at PARP efficacy in endometrial cancer. So we saw. We saw that these HRD scores that were low were kind of associated with effect. And then we saw this high level, high HRD score that was associated with effect. So I don't think that we have a good handle on what represents uh, homologous recombination deficiency uh, in or non-compliance in endometrial cancer cells. Uh, and it may just, it may be somewhat histology dependent as well, as you know. Uh, these endometrial cancer subgroups by histology have, have very different characteristics molecularly. And there may be a subgroup in that, in that maybe the P53 mutant pop, uh, 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 you know, uh, tumors that, uh, uh, that, that might, the signature might exist from. But, you know, the good news is, is that as part of DOE, um, and as part of Ruby, there is gonna be interrogation of this type of biomarker to see if maybe we can't find an HRR signature uh, that that we can um, take advantage of to help, again, further classify which patients are going to benefit. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: It sounds like the beginning of the story for PARP inhibitors in this research for right. endometrial cancer, yeah. but from what you're saying, there is the potential for some kind of positive results for the PMMR population that have in the, um, the Ruby and the NRG, GY0 and 8, they didn't have such impressive results as in the dMMR population, so that's that's a positive, isn't it? To sort of build upon in this, in the pop inhibitor research.
1: Yeah, you know, I think I think the key is is that you know we get back to the biomarkers, keep talking about that because it's so important. The, when the MSI status, you know, MMR status is a it is a predictive biomarker for for IO. So it, it is. A, that's why the initial approval for uh, pembrolizumab, for instance, was approved in in solid tumors with a, with an MSI high, DMR uh, phenotype. So this was. So again, we know that that relationship, uh, you know, is 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 very strong, and it drives it. So the question is, what are the other predictive biomarkers that drive new therapies? And so that's where, that's where we're really trying to work forward, you know, you know, there, cause there's lots of other therapies that are coming that are going to be dependent on either expression levels, So as we see with the ADCs, um, or, uh, uh the P53 mutation status, as we see with the, um, the, uh, uh, uh the, uh, drugs that are being developed for P53 wild type, um, uh, tumors. And so, so this idea of finding, you know, if you take out the DMMR, uh, cohort of, of tumors, and you start looking at everything else, now we're starting to really start to subclassify those again, by using all of these different biomarkers to help us identify what's going to be the next predictive biomarker that will have that same effect that we saw with the MSI high uh, DMMR patients with in immunotherapy, you know, checkpoint inhibitor.
0: An exciting and fast-moving field with all this pro- all this progress and all these research mm-hmm. questions coming up. Okay, how do the results of the phase three trials we've talked about so far? How are they changing the future of first-line treatment in patients with endometrial cancer? Rob,
1: well, I think there, you know, as we mentioned already, they have already entered into the uh, formal approval uh, both by EMA and FDA for this for certain subgroups. So it's already it's already changed the landscape. And so now, our, now the, because of that, now we're starting to think about how we address patients in the PMMR uh, category, as Keta mentioned so nicely, with different therapies, whether it be uh, with PARP, whether it be with P 3 wild-type targeted drugs, whether we use drugs that are targeting HER2, um, all of these, these kind of nuances are trying to to work its way into that same space uh we'll we'll hear about another trial that was comparing a non-chemotherapy versus a chemotherapy in this cohort of patients uh, the LEAP001 trial that'll be coming up here real soon and um and so what we're trying to do again is is to is to figure out how do we approach each specific individual cohort of patients that are identified by tumors that have these specific characteristics and so, so right now, I think we've we've kind of locked in one for sure. It's going to be hard to beat in the dMMR uh, population <laughs> immunotherapy. But uh, but if for that PMM PMMR population, again, we're trying to continue to nuance that to see if we can find the best kind of next next therapy. And so we'll see how that's going. So, but what the you know the one we, thing I will mention is that the landscape has changed because now drugs that we're using in immune checkpoint inhibitors in the recurrent setting. Now are going to be now some, is going to be a population of patients who have been prior IO exposed, and so it's had a profound effect on how we start to think about doing research in the recurrent space, um, and that's really changed a lot. Keta, what do you think?
2: Oh yes, absolutely, and uh, I have no doubt that the future of endometrial cancer will be more and more rely on. Uh, Uh, biomarker driven trial as you said Rob and I have no doubt that we will move immunotherapy right now in the first line advanced setting but probably in the future Rob next year we will see the first results of immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting Right. Right. and this will change again and again and again and very quickly and very fast <laughs> the treatment algorithm because you know the better the earlier if we identify a benefit we would use the drug as earlier as possible in the algorithm and for sure we will have more and more immune pre-treat patients but in my opinion Rob Looking what is happening in other solid tumour, probably also for endometrial cancer, we will distinguish, we will differentiate, uh, um, even though immune exposed the patient, but we will differentiate the patient exposed to immunotherapy but not progressing during immunotherapy and patient progressing during immunotherapy. For other tumours, it seems... uh, that can be a room for reintroduction of immunotherapy in patients who have not progressed during. Uh, And and that's another interesting field of clinical research that we have to address in the future.
1: Oh, boy, don't you? That's so true. And, you know, it's like, are there any ways that we can tell whether or not a patient's going to have an opportunity to re-respond? It's, boy, that's it's it's uh that's exciting areas and and then where do we fit it in with all the other therapies that we have available so you know with like the ADCs that are coming they're going to be uh, available to them. Where, you know where do these where do these drugs fit but you're right as every time we keep moving an effective therapy earlier in therapy and then it has an in, profound impact on people um who who develop recurrences and uh, and we'll have to figure out how to sort that through all that
0: Now, we've already touched on these topics, but is there um, any more you'd like to tell us about the implications of the data presented in 2023 on second-line care in patients with endometrial cancer and also continue the conversation about the DMMR versus PMMR status? Keta?
2: Oh, while I have no doubt that... uh... Immuno plus chemo is the new standard of the care in the DMMR population. So I expected that this patient will receive immediately immunotherapy in combination with platinum-based chemotherapy when the disease recur. Um, for the reason that we discussed with Rob a few minutes ago, for the PMMR tumor, not all the colleagues are aligned about the idea to use uh, um, immunotherapy in combination with chemo in the first-line advanced setting. So for this patient, potentially, or oh, I would say certainly immunotherapy should be used in combination with the TKI inhibitor in second line setting Mm -hmm. in the non-immune pre-exposed patient. Keynote 775 demonstrated that the combination of Pembrova plus Lembatinib ameliorate overall survival with respect to non-platinum chemotherapy. So for patients that will not receive Pembro or Dosta in combination with the platinum-based chemo in the first line setting, we can use it in later line. But I think that this drug anyway should be implemented in the treatment armamentarium.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, that, that, I agree completely. I think that the um, the kind of the question that I always raises in my in my mind is that if a patient has had prior IO exposure, um, and and given what we've seen with what you just mentioned with Keynote seven hundred and seventy five in the PMMR population, so if we consider the DMMR patients that have previously been IO exposed and and have recurred or progressed after that are they essentially like PMMR patients? And then would, would we see a benefit in that combination that you mentioned in keynote 775 in that group of previous exposed patients? I, I don't know. You know, it's, you know. We
2: do not know, Robert. Yeah. I can only mention some few retrospective data coming from renal cancer, which is not exactly the same as endometrial cancer, that suggests a 36% overall response rate in immune pretreated patient receiving at the time of progression the combination of pembrolemba. So potentially the crosstalk between immune and uh, uh, tumor microenvironment and angiogenesis may may play a role in uh, rescue some patient from immune resistance but we do not know it's something to explore
1: yeah yeah and i think you know we've had these cases that um, anecdotal cases of patients who have progressed on single uh, who had progressed during their maintenance phase who were then added uh, the tki uh, lenvatinib to the uh, to the regimen and got a response and there's a recent report from uh, um, uh, the Cleveland Clinic about in, in this very small cohort, again, anecdotal, very small cohort of patients that seem to have a response rate after in, in that exact setting where they've had previous exposure. And of course, you know, we do we know uh, from uh, Ignaz Purgota that um, that uh, Linvatinib has single agent activity. So the question is, is there something about the combination or is this just Linvatinib working, you know, so... We'll see. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, there's so much, so much work to be done there.
0: You've both been very clear about how important biomarkers are for um, diagnosis and treatment decision-making in endometrial cancer. Were there any molecular profiling or biomarker testing or, or early phase studies in endometrial cancer presented during 2023 that caught your attention? Rob?
1: Yeah, I think most of us, um, I'd say that probably the one that caught my attention the most was what uh, uh, Mansoor uh, Mirza presented with Ruby with respect to the subgroups, and um, particularly the P53 mutated uh, tumors versus the wild-type tumors. There seemed to be, again, so this is hypothesis generating, but there seemed to be some suggestion that um, in the setting of a P53 mutation, there seemed to be, a, in, in the PMMR cohort, there seemed to be a strong treatment effect um, <clears throat> with the immune checkpoint inhibitor. And this is pretty interesting. Actually, I've dug into this a little bit and found out that um, P53 mutated tumors can have higher uh, tumor-specific neoantigen loads, even as, even if they're not MSI uh, high. So, so there may be something to that effect that is helping to drive the benefit in the PMR cohort. But equally interesting was that the P53 wild type cohort itself really didn't have very much of an effect of the, seemed to have a very strong effect with, uh, with the uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor, which opens up an opportunity for P53 wild type uh, targeted therapies such as Selenexor and the um, uh, MDM2 inhibitors that are being studied in the, in the, um, uh, in the um, uh, currently uh, as ongoing trials. As a Nafta so there's it's 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 really again it's like I said as we continue to sub sub these these tumors it provides some interesting opportunities. Um, I think one other uh, biomarker uh, driven um, opportunity that we saw last year was the uh, was the activity of uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan in. in in, um, in, in, but not only carcinosarcomas, but also in our, um, uh, in medial cancer that express her 2 Uh, and, uh, this looks also very active. Um, and of course is now being rapidly developed <laughs> in, uh, in the recurrent space in multiple trials because the, of the, really exciting, you know, 40 and 50% response rates we saw, uh, as, as single agents. So I think those were the ones that were really memorable to me.
2: Cara? That's impressive. That, that's impressive. Uh, the two uh, example you mentioned, Selenexor in P53 wild type and Trastuzuma derustecan in R2 positive endometrial cancer patient, if you look at the curves, are identical. So, I mean, it's a target agent with mm-hmm. a predictive biomarker, well-identified, and the results are incredible. But there are other top, other biomarker, uh, in my opinion, uh, uh, Rob, that we will explore in the future. You saw the preliminary results with ADC targeting folate receptor alpha in endometrial mm-hmm. cancer, and some preliminary results of ADC targeting TROP2
0: biomarker
2: mm-hmm. in endometrial cancer. I, I think the, these two drugs uh, probably in the future may provide uh, interesting data. And uh, mm, the two trials I mentioned are for immune pretreated patients. So we assume that patients will receive immune checkpoint inhibitor in combination with chemo, and we are exploring what of uh, after immunotherapy with mm-hmm. the antibody drug conjugates.
1: Absolutely. It's very exciting. And it's again, it's really interesting that we have many companies that want to develop drugs in this space. So we're so, so, so grateful to uh, the partnership that we have to bring these new agents to our patients.
0: Wonderful. And on to our final question What developments in endometrial cancer research do you hope to see in 2024? The big question. Keta, would you like to go first?
2: Oh, yeah, you you know, we would like, uh, my, my dream uh, is to cure patients, and probably we are very close to do it. And my second dream was the possibility to offer a chemo free treatment to our patient. But unfortunately, we will see in ESGO in uh, three weeks uh, the results of lip one trial comparing uh, uh, pembrolenva versus platinum-based chemo. And unfortunately, the results were announced as negative. Still, still the dream is on because we have, uh, Rob mentioned, two studies exploring immuno versus chemo in the DMMR population and probably if uh, immuno reported to be better than, than chemo, and we know that the control arm in this two trials probably is not more the standard, but uh, if immuno reported to be better, we report to be better than chemo, I'm sure we will have uh, several patients that will request the chemo free treatment in the DMMR population.
1: Yeah. I think that's going to be really, really important. Um, yeah, those, yes, yeah, so I'm very excited about that. And I'm, we're hoping to see, again, as you mentioned the P53 wild type as a biomarker for these two, uh, two agents, uh, and, and selenexor, uh, I would, I'm really hoping to see that because as you mentioned, the, the curves in the subgroup analysis, uh, uh, from the Siendo trial looks very, very much like what we're seeing with the uh, immune therapy in the DMMR population. But I think, um, you know, also further expansion of all of this, these ADCs, uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned several of them, There's, and there are more coming. So I think those are going to be really interesting to, uh, to start to interrogate. And then I think this, you mentioned kind of that uh, when we talked about PARP, you know, are there other cell cycle regulators that we might see some activity for? And so we've obviously worked, seen some preliminary evidence with WE1. Um, inhibitors with a couple of different drugs uh, that seems like there's some activity there. Uh, and we've also started to see some initial uh, 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 insight into uh, other check uh, DNA checkpoints, uh, such as ATR and check one and check two. So these again are, are um, again, early, but starting to interrogate even further into these subgroups where we could start to find new, new agents that could be identified in that exploratory nature to bring forward so that we can ultimately change uh, outcomes for our patients.
0: And that concludes today's podcast. Thank you to Professor Keta LaRusso and Dr. Rob Coleman for joining us today and sharing their insights on the most important research and the latest findings in endometrial cancer presented during 2023. Remember to visit our archives for plenty of great podcasts covering many health-related topics. For now, stay safe and stay well, and I hope to have you back again on the EMJ podcast very soon. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now.